Kia ora and thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Coach's Corner podcast. Today's episode, we've got one of the greatest rugby minds I feel when it comes to being a curious coach. And so we're really blessed to have some Canterbury coaching royalty with us on today's sh- show. So he's Canterbury Man 1273 and All Black 806. He's coached Canterbury Bees, Crusaders, Benetton Treviso, Northampton Saints, the Chiefs, Kobe Steelers, the All Blacks, and most recently he was the head coach of the World Cup winning Black Ferns. He hails from Patadudu, uh, where he's found, but he's travelled down, he's found a home at Sheldon Park, and he played for his beloved club, Belfast. So a massive welcome in to Coach Wayne Smith. Welcome in. Thanks, Ricky. Yeah. Pleasure to be here, actually. Great, great, great to be home in Canterbury. <laughs> oh, so you're down. So you're down here at the moment. No, only digitally. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> well, we're glad that you can um, jump on with us. So um, it's a true pleasure. So how's everything been since the World Cup? Yeah, pr- pretty busy. Um, you know, I use that. It's a bit of a tagline now, but um, about retirement. I'm not really retired. I'm I'm still doing. Um, I've got a few interests around the place. Uh, Graham Henry and I actually have a. Um, we do some visits to Tonga. We have a little company there that provides cheap building materials. So we go over and get around the schools and take a bit of rugby gear and that over. And it's something that keeps us, you know, sort of interested and and busy. Yeah. Other than that, um, doing a lot of these sorts of things. Okay. Oh, no, it's wicked. It's wicked to have you on today. Well, um, Smithy, I'm like I'm really thrilled to um that you agreed to jump on our humble little podcast. And like I said just before we kick things off, like it's a great way that us as coach educators here at Rugby Park can get in front of so many coaches without um I guess being out there on the grass. But before we jump into our big chat today, can you kind of chat around um like or paint a picture of you, what your journey looked like of like what drove you to become a coach and what kept, what's kept you coaching? Yeah, it's um, – I had a – so when, when I came down uh, 1979, the beginning of 1979, down to Canterbury from – I was I got my degree at Waikato University, but it was essentially I was told by the Waikato coach at the time that I wouldn't be a first five as long as my ass pointed downwards. <laughs> and so uh, rather than go to teacher's college in Waikato, I thought I'll try a new adventure. I'll go and go, go to um, teacher's college in Canterbury and see what life's like down there. So um, I was supposed to go and join the Christchurch club. Um, a guy, Ross McGlashan, who was a Patero guy um, and a first five, he'd played for um, Christchurch and he, he said why don't you go along there to the trials so I went along to the trials they had 97 trialists so I didn't even <laughs> I didn't even get my boots out of the car and I was staying with some people um, my relations down uh, Main North Road who were Belfast people and they said oh why don't you play for Belfast they haven't got any backs <laughs> I thought oh well, yeah I'll probably probably make that team so that's how I started Belfast and then I had a really curious introduction to coaching because um, we played University in a preseason game, and Laurie O'Reilly was coaching the university. Um, he was also a reserve prop, I think, for that game. And um, 
I mean, I played pretty well for, for Belfast that day. I scored a couple of tries. But after a period of time, I got this call from Laurie saying, did I want to come round to his place for a chat around about coaching? I was, I was 21 or 22. I, I, I can't remember. I, um, maybe yeah, 21, I think. And I didn't know anything about coaching. I was just a player. I was just a young player. So I'm not quite sure what, what it was that interested him and me. But anyway, I went around to his place one Sunday. I can't remember when it was. Ricky, it was sometime that year. And he talked about coaching courses that he that he ran, not on behalf of Canterbury Rugby Union, that he ran himself. And he ran them out at Lincoln University. He'd had Pierre Vulpre out. And he had, um, in 1981, I think he was planning to get Jim Greenwood out, who was one of the great coaches in the world. And he suggested that I should come to the coaching courses and that I could demonstrate, I could demonstrate as a player, I'd also start a bit of coach education. And so that's what I did. Um, Gary Barkle and I, Gary Barkle was my halfback for Canterbury at the time. He and I went to a couple of coaching courses. We demonstrated some stuff. Jim Greenwood's sessions were unbelievably eye-opening on how to build a backline, how to run an attack. And so I just I just started learning at a really early age about how a coach sees the game rather than just a player. So yeah, Laurie was yeah, he he was the inspiration for me right through my playing and coaching career. Really he um don't know why, but he had, he had absolute belief in me from from the start, and right to the right to the day he died. Really, we remained great mates, and he was he was always trying to help me um, with solving coaching solutions. Yeah, just in that real quickly, you said how um, how Laurie like you started seeing the game differently from a, you started seeing it through a coach's lens versus a player's lens. And you're 21, and you're still playing, and you were still playing at that time. What difference did you see in how you played with that lens versus how you played with through the players' lens? Well, um, yeah, I had two big influences really. So Laurie was was definitely one. Um, so it was looking at with Laurie, it was always around um, process, how to how to get that through um, the technical side of the game. Um, you know how to how to impart that to your, to your team to to your players. And remember, I was a player, so and as a first five, you tend to um, want to to run a few things anyway. You know, and, and the way you play. Then I had another massive influence, a guy called Gary Hooper, who played for Canterbury, um, played for South Island, probably good enough to have been an All Black hoops, but. Um, Never, never quite got the recognition. I was playing for Belfast one day on, um, this was early on, on the South Park, Lancaster Park South. And Gary Hooper was on the wing for Marist. We were playing Marist. And I would I would see him up flat in the defensive line. And so when I got the ball, I would kick it. And all of a sudden, he'd be back there catching it and counterattacking. And then sometimes I'd see him deep. And so I'd run it, and then he'd be up there tackling, tackling the winger. I wonder what the hell's going on. Like, I wasn't, I wasn't seeing things properly. 
And so at some point um, through the next year, I got to sit down with Gary. He was in the he was in the Canterbury team, and I just made the Canterbury team. And uh, I asked him what he did that day to, to control me or control the game. And he said, "Well, you you thought that you were um, manipulating me, but I was manipulating you." I said, well, "How'd you do it?" He said, "Oh, well, if I wanted you to kick, I stood up really flat, and uh, and then when you were looking in at the ball, uh, I'd drop back. You'd kick it because that's what you saw. That's a picture you saw." And uh, then I could do counterattack. And I started thinking about, I'd always been taught to, to look at certain things in the opposition, but um, what he was teaching me was paint a false picture and and then change the picture late so that um, you can control the other team, you can shape, shape the enemy. Um, and so it was the start of um, a lot of... Uh, Ideas coming from hoops during our time with Canterbury, and I picked up a hell of a lot from them. Yeah, um, defense in defense and attack, and so aligned with um, with Laurie's ideas, I was sort of already developing, I suppose, as a coach, but sort of almost like a different coach um, because I was getting different ideas, and uh, I felt really privileged to have have people like that sort of driving my thinking in the game. Yeah. And I guess you've already alluded to it a little bit around, like, obviously, Laurie met you playing while you're out in the community. Gary Hooper's taught you a few lessons while you're out playing in the community. How much has the community game, like, helped you in your career as a player or as a coach? Like, what part has that played? Well, you know, I grew up in the 60s. I was born in 1957, grew up in the 60s. Um you never had like we all we all played rugby for our rugby clubs. I played for Patera Athletic. There were two clubs, two strong clubs in Patera at the time, um, but we never really trained. You know, our training was playing, and playing was backyard rugby, um, bull rush. We called it King Asini up north. Um, you know, where you started with one player in the middle, he called someone out. You had to try and beat him. If you beat him and got to the other side, then the whole team came through on a bull rush. And he had to try and, as he tackled people, they stayed in the middle and eventually he had everyone in the middle except one person. And so I started that probably as a five-year-old, I think. Um, a lot of my mates were big Māori guys in Pataru, you know, so I was always a little guy. Um, it took me a while to to be able to um, show up in that sort of game. But um, it was a great way for me to learn self-preservation, <laughs> how, to, how, to avoid, how to avoid tackles. Um, that together with mum chasing me with the wooden spoon when I was naughty, taught me how to sidestep, I reckon. You know, you just learnt differently in those days. You weren't drilled um, as much. And I see some of that coming back in the community game now. There's a guy, um, Steve Milne at Te Puki, that does basically only only backyard rugby as part of his junior rugby coaching. Um, so there's a bit of that coming back. But the game was all about the community Back then, Ricky, you know, like um, you never, I never had dreams of playing provincial rugby or playing for the All Blacks or anything like that. I'd, like that was so far away, I'd, I'd never think of something like that. Um, it was just my my only, when I left Potato High School, we had a really strong team at Potato High School, strong first thing. When I left and went to Waikato University, 
my only dream really was come back and play for Pataru, play seniors for Pataru. And that's what I did. I traveled back from from Hamilton with a group of mates. We trained a couple of days a week and then we played for our home team. And that that was really it. Yeah. Um, I came down to Canterbury for a bit of an adventure. Um, never, I didn't come down with the dream to play for Canterbury or anything. I never, ever had the confidence to think like that. So I just came down to get a new experience and things went well and you get a bit of luck and um, you come through um, for different reasons. But Belfast was one of the best things I ever did because we had a great forward pack, um, had some good backs, but not a lot of not a lot of backs, but good coaching. Um, but we had a club behind us, you know, right through my career. I had that club and the supporters um, backing backing me. Um, in those days, of course, the game was amateur. Everything was based around your club. Um, when you went on an all-black tour, I couldn't have gone without support of the Belfast people, you know, because I was working. I had um, Trish and I had twin boys at the time, and you're not getting paid when you're away for two months. Um so I had really good support from from the club and and from the people of the club, really. So the game was um, all about community, all about and and it wasn't um, it wasn't what you wanted community for you. It's what you could do for community. You know, how, how did you get them involved? Um, and virtually everyone around that Belfast community had some interest in the club. So. Um, yeah, it was, it's different to today um, or a different level today, but I believe uh, community rugby is going to be really, really important over the next decade or so. And I think looking at ways that we can get back to how do we involve community, how do we raise the interest in the game, how do we get more people to play the game again. Yeah. what's um, What I really love around the story that you just told then is – around it didn't seem like you're in a rush to get somewhere like you had no you had no you didn't even think that you're going to make the Canterbury team or any provincial team that wasn't kind of on your radar with nowadays it seems to be like that for our young athletes coming through they're wanting to play premier rugby straight away from first 15 um schools or when they get, leave school they want to be playing in their senior team and they seem to be trying to go as fast as they can. And I think that's, for me, that's where we're kind of missing. There's that link there yeah. that missing within the community game is because maybe at a community environment, we are trying to make it as professional as possible for these players that are wanting that environment, but actually we're losing kind of at the, I guess, the heart of what the game means to the community, right? Yeah. I think it's frustrating to everyone, Ricky, that you don't see provincial players playing club rugby anymore. You don't see All Blacks playing club rugby anymore. In my day, it was a vehicle, like club rugby was your vehicle to make teams. I remember um, getting selected in 82, I think, for the for the Australian series. I'd been injured and Bryce Rope came down to, to Christchurch to watch me play for Belfast in a game. I think we played New Brighton. I don't even think I played very well, but um, I did enough for him to think, oh, yeah, he, he's okay to go. So um, 
everything stemmed from that. Like I, I said before, I was lucky to to make Canterbury because because you need you need a bit of luck. My luck was I was playing quite well for Belfast. Um, I got put on the bench for mid Canterbury game, the Canterbury mid Canterbury game down in Ashburton, and Robbie Deans was first five for Canterbury Christchurch club. Um, became a legend of the game, obviously, uh, but at fullback. And so I was on the bench that day, didn't get on. Mid-Canterbury beat Canterbury. And that was my that was my lucky break because Robbie got put back to fullback at, uh, at, for Canterbury B and I got called into Canterbury. I still remember we were playing South Canterbury. It was my first game for Canterbury. I was marking Lynn Jaffray, who was an all-black at the time. And I remember Grizz, who was captain, of the all of um, Canterbury, at one point we had a line out over on the right hand side of the field, and he asked me to kick kick the ball with my left foot, and I think he was checking whether I had the skills, the skill <laughs> level to be to be in the Canterbury team. Uh, so there were little tests like that along the way, um, but yeah, you you would never have made a provincial team or a, or an All Black team without playing club rugby in those days. Yeah. Which is yeah, which is and you have to be like talking to talking to Robbie and even we've had a, I've had a conversation last year with Grizz, like that club rugby was just so important to test the measure of who you are as a as a player. Like if you if you can do that at club rugby and then you go and play play in Canterbury, there's a certain expectation that you go back to your club and you play the same way. Like you don't drop off because you're you're back playing club or you don't drop off because you've been put to play Canterbury Bees, you still have to be playing at that high standard the whole way through. And that's, yeah, that was kind of the message that Robbie was, Robbie and Grizz was, were telling us when we were um, talking around what does the community game mean to them? And they were like, yeah, keep that high standard throughout the whole time. doesn't matter who you are. Yeah. 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 And playing for your club was just as important as playing for Canterbury or playing for the All Blacks. Yeah, I never saw any difference. You had to prove yourself every week. You had to prove yourself at training because um, the competition was so strong. You know, I had um, Kieran Kane join the Belfast Club from university, and he was an all-black second five, Canterbury first five. So we had huge competition between the two of us, and I often played second five for Belfast outside Kieran. And so um, you had to be at your best the whole time, and you needed the support of your club you know, because um, every every club you played against had top players in it. And, my, you know, I'd really love to see that again. When when I was at Chiefs with Dave Rennie, um, I, I wanted to um, get some of the guys to play for Potaru when they weren't picked for the Chiefs team. And so one of the guys I got to go down there was Robbie Robinson who I knew had been, you know, from Southland, played for a small club there. And so I got Robbie to go down and, and train with Pitaru and hopefully play a game for them. And I think the first time we went down for training, they might have got about 80 people, 80 guys turn up for training. Yes. From, from secondary school kids through to, you know, under-19s, under-21s, yeah. senior B, the social team and the senior team. And it raised the standards of the club without him even playing. He didn't even play because he became a regular for Chiefs 
a great player, Roy Robinson. Um, and he yeah, won a couple of championships with us. He he was outstanding. But what it did, it raised the attitude of, of Pataru that year and I think raised the standards in, in, in that, hell, we got a we got a Chiefs player here yeah. training with us. You know, and he, he wasn't able to do it very often because, as I say, he became a regular for us for at Chiefs. But I think it picked the team up. And, and the same with Belfast when um, Sonny Bill came down to Canterbury. Yeah. You know, he he played he played his first game for Belfast was against Lincoln University, who were high flying at the time. We filled the we filled Sheldon Park. Um, he played about fifty minutes, sixty minutes, scored a try. And Belfast beat Lincoln University and went on to win, I think, six games that season. He only played that one game, but the fact that he was there, he used to go down when he could to club rugby and watch it. Um, after the game, he would go and sit at every table in the club club rooms just for a chat. Doesn't drink, but would sit there and have a wee chat to people and just move around the tables. That, that's like gold. Yeah. You know, that that's... Um, that's what club rugby should be like. Well, I know that like even like when um, Dan came back and started playing back for Southbridge and just like talking to the guys here at work and, and from what we've seen, like it was just pandemonium out there at the club land. Like people, you know, they never got a chance to, or some of them never got the chance to watch him play in the All Blacks jersey or some, some of them didn't get to watch him play in the Crusaders or Canterbury jersey, but He's playing now in the Southbridge colours and just what that did to the club. They've obviously got a museum for him now in the club rooms. But <laughs> mate, what it what it does that what it does for that community to see that one of the greats has has come back to to play for the put on the blue and white hoops of Southbridge is is huge for the game. And I think they played his first game back, they played Hornby. And it was like one of the biggest games that they've ever had crowd wise to come to a Hornby versus Southbridge game and that's that's beautiful. What humility too from maybe the greatest player the world's ever seen to come back and play club rugby at that level and yeah. be probably nervous about it. He was I, I remember him being a wee bit nervous about it about um you know he, he had to uphold his standards yeah within himself to make sure he didn't let Southbridge down and, and uh yeah, that's that's huge humility, isn't it? Yeah, that's massive. And I, and I look at it like we've had this discussion before, like those people that take the field with them as well, or like from both sides of the team, like they're getting an opportunity to see what world-class looks like firsthand. Like I could imagine that the, the opposite 12, I think he was playing 12 or 10, and the, like the back line were just going, oh, what is this guy going to do? Like we need to try and like their level of game now has to raise a little bit. Yeah. His teammates' level of game has to raise a little bit. Like that's just powerful. So um but it goes both ways too, Ricky. So um, you know, club club rugby's a really good um standard for um returning players to take part in. I remember yeah. um Israel Dag. Now it would have been I was coaching, I was one of the all black coaches at the time. He was injured. He came back, played for university against Belfast when I watched him I was able to report back to um, Graham Henry would have been Graham Henry at the time I think it might have been Steve Hanson head coach I can't remember but um, he had an outstanding game Is he outstanding he was involved in everything he loved it um, and it got him back in the All Blacks yeah 
so I, I think it's it's still potentially a, a pathway. I know it's difficult because of the number of games that these guys play now, but um, yeah, it'd be great to see a bit more involvement, wouldn't it? Yeah, it'd be awesome. And I know that our communities, like you said, like it, those, like the Belfast, the Sumners, the the Sydneys, like when they get their get their players back, their or their or those players, like it just lifts that that community and they get they do get right behind and they get very loud and very vocal and yeah <laughs> and that type of stuff and that's the stuff that we love about club rugby right well you mentioned um Sumner there so I remember Razor when he when he's finished playing he um helped build that Sumner club back up I remember yep. him coming around home um one day with a video camera and he showed me some footage that he'd taken ar- around Sumner that he wanted to create an identity for the team. And uh, he had all these key um, parts of some of the waves, the surfers, the, you know, the cafe, all this sort of stuff, the rugby club. Um, and so he was putting back into that level um, not that long ago either. No. And he still probably, he still does it today. Yeah. 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 So again, it shows um, an understanding of where you came from and, a desire to give back. Yeah. No, that's that's cool. We'll, we'll jump into um I could keep talking about the community game for ages with you, but we'll jump into the um our topic today around being curious. And I guess there's no fitting person to be um talking about being a curious coach than um the professor himself. So I guess what builds your curiosity or how do you where does your curiosity for the game actually come from and how do you use it to like create the way that you play the game of rugby? Um, probably, probably starts at your birth. Yeah. <laughs> I was born into a, um, a rugby mad family and rugby mad community. I was always going to play rugby. I don't think there was any, I don't even think there's any soccer or anything in Pataru when I was growing up. It was only really rugby and cricket in summer and some tennis. So um, so I had from, from an early age, I had that love of the game. Um, I spoke about guys like Gary Hooper, um, Kieran Kane, who I learned a lot of, um, who were fellow players, um, and Laurie O'Reilly, who was sort of my coaching mentor for years until he passed away in 1998. Unfortunately, he didn't, he didn't see my um, uh, the, the first championship we won with Crusaders. But um, I wish he had of. So my curiosity, uh, I suppose, came from the fact that I played 10. Um, Coaching back in those days, back in those early days, even at All Black level, relied a lot on player feedback. Often often you were told, um, so-and-so, you take the forwards away. Um, and Smithy, you, you take the backs away and run through some of the plays. And because there's usually only one coach at the time, you know, like when I played for the All Blacks, I only ever had one coach right through from um, Eric Watson through to BJ Lahore. Really, it was it was only one coach. And so they can't, couldn't do two jobs at once. So you had a responsibility back then to at least organise um, some things. And there's a lot of rugby intellect within the whole team. And so everyone chipped in about how we do that, how we do that, what sort of lines we take there. Um, it wasn't coaching as such. It was more organising to make sure we're all on the same page. 
when when I finished with the All Blacks, um, the end of '85 um, in 1986, uh, I went to uh, Trish and I took the kids to Italy, and that was the start of me actually being a coach. Um, so I was a player coach for a small club called Casale, Casale Sulcile. Uh, the only influence I had over there really from other coaches, I was just a young uh, coach, obviously. I was 29, I think, when I started. Um, major influence was French, French coaching. So I got to know Pierre Vilpre, a guy called Andre Bonomo. Um, and all of a sudden I was exposed to something that really excited me, a more global methodology of coaching. So, you know, in New Zealand I was used to um, – you do it this way, you know, you put your foot there, your hands there, your thumbs up, um, you pass off that foot, you know, all, all that sort of stuff. So it was more analytical um, coaching methodology, whereas um, Bonomo and Vilpreur would throw the ball up and they'd just play. And so you, you um, and they might make the field wider so that you had to learn how to use wide spaces. They might, might make it narrow so you had to learn how to penetrate through the middle. Um so it was a totally different way to see the game, and I loved it. Also, um, being in, in a small town where no one spoke English, I had to be immersed in Italian. And so one of the ways I learned to speak the, the not just Italian language, but the dialect in, of our area was to ask questions. So I started asking questions of the players. Um, what did you do? That's pretty pretty easy question to answer um, but they were responding in Italian so I started to pick up the language but I was also learning what they knew about the game so what did you do what did you see to do that what would you do next time those sorts of questions and try to get descriptive answers you know if you ask why or how um, I, I, I learned over time if you ask those questions you often get a justification or a can, can be a confronting question yeah. I wanted it to be a uh, a question that I got a descriptive answer. I wanted it to stay in the player's brain. Often, when you tell a player something and you instruct, it goes in one ear and out the other. But if you ask them a question, they got to describe it back to you. Then it'll stay. They it, it creates better self awareness. So I started that whole that whole process over there. Um, I'd come out of rugby, as I said before, out of. Uh, an environment where the players had a huge amount of input because you only had a single coach. So I already had this belief that people will rise to a challenge if it's their challenge. They won't necessarily rise to someone else's challenge. So that became central to the way I thought I should, should coach. Um, I'm sure that the players had a major part in what we were doing. They were proactive. Um, guided discovery was okay, so you can you can guide them in a certain direction, but Really, at the end of the day, they've got to come up with the important stuff, who they are, who they're representing, where they want to go, what their purpose is, what their strengths are. Um, that was another thing that um, I worked really hard on was what they're already good at. I decided I was only good at certain things as a player um, and it was good enough for me to be a cog in a wheel of some great teams. I yeah. wasn't a great I wasn't a great at the game myself, but I could I could be a cog and I could I could play for great teams, and so um, to do that I had to get better at what I was good at. So I was I was 
small, I was skinny, so I was fit. I liked training hard, so that was one thing I worked really hard on. I was quick. I'd been a sprinter when I was young, um, so I, I worked on that my whole career. Um, I had some good basic skills. I had to. Um, I had to because <laughs> I wasn't going to be running through anyone, so um, I worked on that stuff, really, and then if there were a couple of things that I couldn't do that were important for the team, I would work on those as well. So that's why I decided to coach, work on the strengths, fix up a couple of things that are important to the position, but if they're not important to the position you play in, don't waste time on it. Get better at what you're good at. Yeah, that's that's a really good message. What what I'm kind of real curious about is like your – you're talking around the questioning stuff around using using what questions um, so that you can get more descriptive answers um, from your players. But then you're talking around like guided discovery and all that type of stuff. How big a part has your educational, because you talked about how you started to become a teacher, how big a part has that um, knowledge and background helped you with your coaching today? And in your curiosity, yeah. Well, teaching's about pedagogy, isn't it? It's about um, getting things to stick in young people's brains. So, coaching's the same, and it's about communication. You've got to be able to communicate um, effectively. And I just found the best way for me was was to, to create that self awareness. Was get the answers from the players. Didn't always go well. I remember when I came back. Um, when I started with Crusaders in 97 and I started using this methodology that I had trialed in Italy, I trialed with Canterbury B. I had some success with it. I went back to Italy with, um, to coach Benetton and I was pretty, pretty certain that it would work back in New Zealand. But when I joined the Crusaders in 97, I had some hiccups. So I wasn't asking the right questions. And I remember quite a few times having confrontations. Actually, one would be with Razor. I don't know if he remembers this, but I asked him why he did something. And he basically said, well, I think it was the right thing to do. But I didn't mean that. I meant, why did you know? Um, what did you do? And what was the reason for doing it? What did you say to do it? But I, I framed the question wrong. And so I was learning, I was learning along the way. You know, you, you pick up things um, as you go and – what I'd like to say to the coaches is that nothing's unique. Nothing's unique in the game. You know, like I haven't invented a whole lot of stuff. Your uniqueness comes from the diverse people that you meet and the different perceptions and you'll grab something from someone that really um, seems really important to you. And so over time you grab two or three things from different people and you become your unique you. You know, but you're not actually inventing stuff. You're just bringing everything together in, in a unique way that it, it becomes you as a coach. So I think it's important for coaches to know. You don't have to go and invent anything. Um, just read widely. Um, I read a I read a lot of books through my life. A lot of books on key educators like Stephen Covey. You know those, those sorts of people. Um, that. Again, I would take little things out of and I'd add them into my coaching armory and essentially end up an amalgam of a lot of ideas and a lot of different people. Yeah, and how do you sort those ideas out? Because 
I'm probably I'm one that I enjoy reading and listen to podcasts and research journals and all that type of stuff. How and we've got another, we've probably got a lot of people that are listening to this podcast and they're trying to organize bits and pieces these little nuggets that they're picking up. How do you organize that? I guess at times it probably could look like chaos. <laughs> yeah. Um there's no other way than trying it, trialing it. And I would say um, I would have trialed more stuff that failed that actually worked, but you learn as much from the failures as you do from from the successes. And I remember it's just a little sort of story that's a bit funny to me. Um, leading up to the 211 World Cup, um, I'd been doing some work with Melbourne Storm and uh, they run dojo sessions for their contact. So I decided to um, run some defence dojo sessions outside on the field and use some of the stuff that a guy, John Donahue, had taught me at Melbourne Storm. Um, and I wanted us to be the best chop tackling team at the World Cup. So I started this stuff off, and it was a bit of a hit. It, it was good. It was new. Um, the boys liked it. And I was walking back from training feeling pretty good about myself, and Ali Williams came up and he put his arm around me and he said, Smithy, that'd be the first decent thing you've done all year. <laughs> <laughs> And he was, and he was right. You know, I'd had, I tried different stuff, and not everything worked. Um, but the odd thing works, and then you just, you just build on it and build on it. And so long as you're humble and you're um, prepared to make mistakes, and the players can see that, I think, I think they'll back you. Yeah. And and how do you stay curious? Because, like you said, like there's nothing, there's nothing about the game. That- like that hasn't been done before and you've been a part of the game for so long. Like how do you stay, keep curious around trying to find improvements and and grow? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, Like growth mindset's really, really important. Um, So when, if I was recruiting players, for example, that would be one of the things I would test is um, what's their, what's their growth mindset like? Do they, are they curious? Do they, they like learning, you know. If you gave them a couple of jigsaw puzzles and one was simple and one was difficult, would they pick the difficult one? I'd always go for the players that would pick the difficult one because it's interesting to them and they want to challenge themselves. And I think coaching's the same. You have to you have to um keep learning. It never stops. Like I'm sixty I'm sixty-six next month and I'm still learning all the time. Every time I share an idea, you get five back. You know, and you don't have to accept all of them, but there's always some gems in there. And so you just um you just gotta drive yourself to to be like that. It's not always easy. I don't think I'm naturally like that. I drive myself to um why is that why is that person successful? What what are they doing? Why is that team playing so well? You know, I want to find out about that. Um, how are they doing that? And I think Rose is very much like that. Yeah, um, where he's he gathers a lot of ideas and then implements them through through coaches helping him through players. He's very player centric. Um, so yeah, at some point, once you've got all the ideas, you've got to learn out. You've got to learn which ones to implement, which ones are going to work, and how you're going to do that. And what I really love is that you've you've talked about trying things a lot 
and how that kind of cre- your curiosity around like trial we're going to fail but if we if we fail we can still learn how can we improve it or how can we make it better there's probably and I've been in the position before and there's probably a lot of coaches out there in that position is they get comfortable with what they're doing because they're not at that or they're not striving to push for that level so they just they know what they know and they're happy with that and it's getting them results what would be some advice you could give those coaches to re- to kind of get outside that comfort zone and really stretch themselves the same way as that we're trying to stretch our players? Yeah. Well, you never know everything. So continuing to learn is important. Um, experiment in other areas. When I was um, a young coach and I started coaching Canterbury B in 19, I started as a player coach, player assistant coach with John Phillips initially and then, I took over with John Mills. John Mills was a really free thinker. He'd been in his hooker for Canterbury with me. Um, he became an All Black hooker. Had a couple of games for the All Blacks. Um, he's a very, very smart man. Very free thinker. So, um, and I had, I had already had an association as a player with um, Gilbert Anoka. I'd been going around the schools. He was a um, head teacher at Hillmorton High School. I was having a cup of tea with him one morning. Must have been about 82, 1982, I think. And I was fascinated. He was captain of the New Zealand volleyball team and he was um, studying sports psychology or psychology, actually, at, at Canterbury University. And I was just fascinated with, with him. He helped me. I was up and down as a player. I was a running player. I wasn't a kicking 10. And so the form fluctuated. Sometimes I'd have a good running game. Sometimes I wouldn't. Um, and he helped me with some ideas to become, um, to level my performance out to be a bit more consistent. So when I when I started coaching Canary B and, and Canary Sevens, he became a key cog in my coaching. I, I can't imagine getting where I've got to without Gilbert Anoka helping me in those years and, and advising me and being part of my coaching team. Now, early on, of course, you can imagine – um, no rugby union in the country wanted a sports psychologist involved. You know, they thought you're crazy. You know, they thought, well, you've got mental health issues or something. You know, what do you need a bloody um, sports site for? So I had to sell them to the board, the Canterbury board, as a masseur. And I think they caught on to it or they, they got a whiff of the fact that maybe he wasn't a masseur. And they sent one of the board members up to um, – the sevens tournament up in uh, fielding it was in those days, just to check that he was what I said he was. So I had to get him to go and grab some oil <laughs> and give the boys a bit of a rub while the board member was watching. So he went across to dairy and got some peanut oil. I remember saying to him, I don't want you to fry them, I just want you to rub them. <laughs> but anyway, it, it did the business. He, he he rubbed a few of the boys Um I think the board member went back and reported that yeah, he does actually, he is actually Monsieur. But like he was running, we were running sessions pre-training that I don't think anyone else in, in the world was doing. So he was, we had these little exercise books. Um, we called our Bible at the time. Um, we'd take notes on Gilbert would have 20 minutes before every training session. Things like um, you know, how do you calm down? Um, how do you stay in the present so you can do the next task well on the field? Um, we had a central part of the book was our what if. So what if the bus breaks down on the, game, on the way to the game? 
what are the other teams not doing what we expect them to do? How do we react there? And at the back of the book, we had a glossary of terms. Now, this is in 1988, you know, unheard of really in, in probably most sports. And so every team I coached from that point on, even, even Northampton, I used Bert as our sports psych, so he'd come over now and again and give us gems, put us on the right track. And then as a coach, I almost learned to become a sports psychologist myself. So he was educating me as well as the players, and I was curious about it. So I was reading books on it, um, Martin Seligman on on learned optimism. He's got a great book called Flourish Seligman on um, how to create grit and resilience, which counters depression yep. and mental health issues. Um, people like that. And so, yeah, without without Gilbert and Oakley, I, I wouldn't have done anything in the game. I don't think he he um, he shaped my brain, but he he also widened it. And when you reshape, it's bloody hard to put it back into the into the small space it was. And so, yeah, he was that man for me. And then subsequently, um, once I've left that all black environment, which which um, it's been a huge part of for twenty twenty odd years, um, David Galbraith took over sort of that role of Gilbert for me with the Chiefs and latterly with Kobe. Yeah. Um, so two great men that um, keep keep shaping my growth. Yeah. And, and what's what's cool about that um, that I've picked up is that everything that you're talking about is around um, just – just growing your experience, like different experiences. And that's keeping you like from whether it's your, what you're reading to who you're talking to, like that global um, mythology that you're talking about. Like when you went over to your experience over in Italy and, and all that type of stuff, you've, you've kind of taken that and, or that lens and you've applied it to everything now into how you operate now. Would I be right in saying that? Or yeah, as I said before, you you build um, yourself as a coach, as an educator, as a teacher. You build that through your various experiences, and not everyone can go to Italy to be a to be a player coach. Um, that doesn't matter. You might just be coaching junior rugby at a rugby club. It's it's how you you know you've got unlimited access and libraries and online to coaching information. And, you know, you shouldn't be taking everything that people say to be um, right for you. But you'll know as you're reading a book, you know, I'm a great underliner of stuff in books. People who I give books to say, oh, you've been writing on the, you've been writing on the edge of the book, you know, on the edge of the page, isn't it? That's how I learn. Yeah. Everyone will learn differently. You know, you spit out what you don't want and you, you take on board something that you think, yeah, it's really cool. It suits my personality and what I want to do. And that's how you learn. You don't have to be a professional. You don't have to um, be rubbing shoulders with um, giants. You just need just need to have that, that, bright, that um, curious brain that says, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to branch out a wee bit and have a look at maybe how to do things a bit differently and grow myself. Yeah. One thing that um, 
it kind of reflects back to we had Robbie on a few episodes ago and he talked about how coaching all coaching is amateur like it's like it's obviously there's a little bit of difference between like the level of athletes that they have but essentially like there's no difference to the way that he coaches uh, the Panis, uh, the Wild Knights at the moment versus how he, if he went back to his club Glenmark yeah. coached in the same way all, what, all he's got now is he's just got more experience and he's learnt more things and he's and his his mind's grown and and he's become more curious. Are you of that same same belief that if you were to go back and coach Tarudu Athletic, that you'd be coaching the same way as what you coached the All Blacks? Hundred percent. Yep. So sometimes um, now I'm at Waihe Beach. I I go and help Waihe Athletic the odd time. I haven't done for a couple of years, particularly with the Black Ferns campaign, but. Um, yeah, so I would I would take my computer down. I would show a couple of clips on the TV in the clubhouse, uh, maybe before training. Is what we're going to look to do today. Go out and run a couple of things. Um, I'd be as nervous doing that as I would doing it with the All Blacks because yeah. I've got my own standards and I know um, how I want to do something. I want to do it properly, uh, and so yeah, I'm totally on the same page as Robbie there. You know. Um, I've got an interesting story of Robbie because I wanted him. Uh, we're, we're great mates, obviously, through playing together for Canterbury and the All Blacks. Um, when I got the Crusaders job in '97, the Crusaders weren't a love team at all. You know, in '96, it wasn't just that they they got last in '96. It was, you know, it was a regional team, and I don't think Canterburyans could really buy into that. You know, having Aucklanders come down and play for a red and black team wasn't uh, top of their list. And the regions, I think, you know, the Nelson Bays and Melbourne, they probably supported the Hurricanes and the West Coast and South Canary supported Highlanders and we are on a bit of an island ourselves. And so I targeted Robbie as my manager because I was thinking, who, who's got the biggest influence around the region? You know, I'm being a North Canary man, being a legend of Canary rugby, um, hugely popular. Uh, he was my target, and so I rang him quite a few times and had some conversations with him. And he wasn't keen. He wasn't keen at the time. I think he might have been a project manager with Fresh Up at the time. He's pretty happy what he was doing. Finally, talked him into it, and that was the start of so '97. That was the start of his involvement, re-involvement in rugby. And yeah, so um, we took similar paths. That's for sure, and probably still remain the same in that we you're always learning, but um doesn't matter what level you're you're coaching at, you're imparting what you think works and you do it in the same way, whether it's a club player or a or an all black. Yeah. No, that's awesome. And where does where does curiosity and creativity, what's your relationship with those two, like your curious mind then com- translate into your creativity what's your relationship with that easiest way to explain it i suppose for me is i don't have a bank of drills i'd get a a request just about every day oh can you send me send me your drills your skills and drills exercises but i haven't got i haven't got any so for me every training is unique and um I constantly design in my head and then on paper, I'm, I'm, I'm a writer down of things. I digitize it, all my training plans 
digitized, but they're never the same. And the the way I do stuff's never the same. So what I did on Tuesday, um, yeah, it worked pretty well, but I'm going to extend it this Tuesday. I'm going to do it slightly differently. I'm going to add a couple more things in. And I think that goes back to that global methodology that I talked about, which is a um, which is a French thing of of play. So I use a lot of game-based learning rather than skill-based and try and bring the decision-making and the skill level into the game by by changing the parameters of the game, making the field smaller, making the numbers greater, um, playing from using the try lines as, as touch lines so that you have forcing wider passes or whatever it is. Um, generally, that's that's how I operate. So I'm always trying to think of how am I going to get this skill developed within the game today? Yeah. And so I'll just design something that's, that I haven't done before often. It's, and so in that's probably something really, um, really interesting. So you're going into a training session, you've got, you're doing this brand new game that you've just made up maybe the day before that you, and you've identified a skill that you want to try and um, flesh out of that, out of that game. How much are you worried about what the actual game looks like versus are you focusing purely just on identifying the skill, the skill and the decision making processes that you that you described? Um, bit of both. So the, the first thing, the first thing I'm looking for in a lot of the games that that I that I create. For example, um, I play often play like a weak link type game where the team that's in defence they'll have a couple of tiers in different coloured bibs and two players have to grab the two two players have to grab each other around the hips and they've got to defend like that, like a like a pair of locks entering a, a scrum. Yeah. And so they're a weak link all of a sudden. So um there's a myriad number of things you can do with that sort of game. You know, if you um I call it um oh in, in Japan I call it keto, which is to duel, you know, to to fight someone with a like with a foot with a sword or something. So we'll call keto when we see there's a weak link and we'll attack that weak link and work out different ways to do it. Um, so so that's the first thing is to use use a game to create um, what you want to see in the in the actual game. Like how do you identify where, where the space is to attack? How do you communicate that? What do you do when you're attacking a weak link like that? It might be a, a tighty prop on the blind side. How, how are you going to attack that space? So um, that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is I have this attitude that if you're not making mistakes at training, it's not difficult enough. You're not challenging yourself enough. I hate perfect trainings where um, I'd, I like the fact that players are trying to be perfect by um, not making mistakes. But if they're doing that by playing within themselves, it doesn't suit the way I want to play. And so. Um, I'd expect quite a few mistakes at training. You don't want them constantly making the same ones, but um, you want them challenging themselves. Yeah. You know, so if the pass is on to give it at the back, you want them to actually give it rather than, now I'm going to hang on to it because I'm not confident of doing that. If you don't trial it at training, then you're never going to use it. So I think that's important. Um, and then uh, I tend to use uh, whole part whole methodology 
So we'll play a game that we've designed, got some certain rules. Through that, through that game, you'll see some things that um, aren't quite working. And so I'll often stop the game and we'll, and we'll split the team into small groups and do an activity might be um, drawing and passing closer to the opposition. And then after the pass, blocking the defender so he can't get, or she can't get to the person who passed the ball to. And so we might go into a little drill for two minutes, practicing that, and then we'll take it back into the game and we'll, ha- we'll want to see if, that, if, if it's um, been applied in, in the game. So that's, that's basically how I operate. Yeah. Whole activity, part activity, something that we want to take back into the game. Whole activity again, see how it's going. And then you might see something else that's important. So you might have another break for two minutes. Um, I use GPS, obviously, in the professional game. And so I, I often use live GPS figures to see if the guys are running far enough or fast enough. And if they're not, give them a challenge. So you might, um, I might see that some players are lagging behind. Uh, so how does the team get together and get those players up to the levels that they need to be at? And you can do the same in all sorts of areas, you know, create a competitive environment so that you're always trying to get better. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's real cool. What um, what kind of got me, piqued my interest there is like you don't like a perfect training. So if you were to walk away from a good training session and you could only use one word to describe that training session that you've had a good training session what word would that be um if i use someone else's word of watching my training sessions it'll be chaotic yeah (laughs) would it would that would that feel chaotic to you in that moment uh oh absolutely yeah um particularly my thursday afternoon trainings are um are really chaotic really hard really fast they're about Thursday afternoon training is about 34% of our high-speed meters during the week, so it's actually higher than the game yeah. on Saturday. And they and I've designed them as chaotic so that um, it's really testing the players. And sometimes I'll give yellow cards. Sometimes I try and take that red to blue concept out onto the field, make sure that they can handle things going against them under pressure. I might send someone around the post because. Um, I might make up a reason for doing that just to test can they get back in the present can they calm down Um, so yeah they're they're pretty chaotic actually before the French semi-final um, in the Women's World Cup I had Owen Eastwood who's who's a mate of mine who's written a book called Belonging and for anyone listening to this buy the book Belonging it's about whakapapa about us about um, identity and its place in sport He's a brilliant, brilliant man, Owen. And then after that, the French, the, the Thursday afternoon training before we played the French was particularly chaotic. <laughs> and I walked away thinking, I wonder what the hell um, Owen thought of that. <laughs> like, honest, honestly, um, we were, you know, and when you're playing against each other and the other team knows, the team that's not starting knows what you're trying to do and they're trying to disrupt you and the, and the quality is as good as a team that's starting, you know, you're going to get a lot of mistakes. You're going to get chaos. And the game often feels much simpler 
and you're much more accurate in the game because you're playing against a team that that um, doesn't know what you're going to do. And so um, I haven't found out from Owen yet because he's back in the UK. I haven't found out what he thought of the training, but I'm I'm contacting him to do that. <laughs> yeah. So if, so if you walked away from the training and and you didn't have that sense of chaos or that chaotic feeling to describe how that training went, you'd would you be like, I didn't hit the mark there with this this training this week? It would depend because um, you can get some really good trainings and you're always hoping for really good trainings where the skill level is still really high and the um, ability to take chances is, is high. So yep. making the offload, keeping the ball alive, everyone coming forward, um, passing close to the opposition, hitting those holes, um, popping off the ground, whatever it is, if they're doing that and the accuracy is good, man, you're really happy. Yep. <laughs> you, know, you go away from training thinking we are ready for the weekend. Um, if they're not doing that and the training's beautiful, but you know they're not taking their chances, then I'm always anxious about the game because I know the game's not going to be like that. Um, and conversely, if we've had a, a really kind of training, a bad training, and there's been lots of mistakes, but it's because we're trying to do what, what we want to do, then I'm normally quite happy. And, you know, um, a poor training, um, can often result in a really good performance on the weekend because it sharpens players' minds. It um, raises the intensity of their preparation. And it, I, I think it's a really great preparation tool to just leave that Thursday afternoon training a wee bit, um, not ner- yeah, a wee bit nervous, a wee bit, yeah, we've got to get better. I've got to, I've got to put a bit of work into that tonight and tomorrow to yeah. make sure I do that better. And would you design your trainings like that to be to give the players that sense of like nervousness, being like shit, we didn't hit the mark here today. Yeah. When they and would it be planned when when you felt like they needed that, or would it be something that just organically happened and you're just like, well, let's see what Saturday has for us. <laughs> yeah. So interestingly, whilst the trainings themselves are designed to be chaotic and create a lot of decision-making situations and also put the players under huge pressure and, and so that they, they can manage that and still be accurate under it. The way we plan the trainings is the opposite of that. It's, it's very precise. And so um, to the extent of we know how long each phase is going to be, what our rest period is, when we need to finish the rest period to give us give ourselves about another twenty seconds to start the next, the next you know the next um, part of training or the next um, play, it's it's very very precise. The training itself and the skill level isn't. Yeah. So we're 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 putting a lot of detail into planning the training to make sure that it's difficult for the players. No, that's that's cool bit of advice. This um, is just me. This is just me, though, Ricky. Like, I'm not yeah. expecting coaches and club level to go out and do all that sort of stuff. But I, I would, I would suggest that um, you, you you make them reasonably difficult, sort of not too far beyond the skill level of your players, but but make them raise their skill level to to achieve what you want to achieve, and you, you accept. You have to accept mistakes if if you're going to be like that. If you want them to improve. And play a 
a game, an attacking game that you want them to play, then you've got to accept that there'll be mistakes. And that'll get better over time. And then you make it more difficult again. And then you make it more difficult again. So you raise that level of difficulty yeah. as you go. But you've got to start somewhere. And, you know, I'm talking about, I'm, you know, I'm coaching elite athletes. And we're talking here about community rugby. So obviously, you start at a much lower level and a slower level. Um, but you can build that up through, yeah. through, the, through the year. And I think the players really enjoy that, that game-based learning. I think it's really inspiring to them rather than just being in lines and passing the ball, um, doing it in some sort of game activity, I think is much is a much more motivating way to coach. Yeah. And as you as you say that, and I guess one thing that um that's kind of running through my head at the moment is like although you're working with at, at like those elite, these are world class players or on the brink of world class um player notoriety is that if we're playing a game and wish and our whole purpose as a coach is we're trying to stretch them, we're trying to f- not force them into mistakes, but we're trying to get them to make mistakes and that type of stuff. If you're at an amateur level or if you're at a high performance level, the it's got to balance themselves out. Would you would you not agree? Because the at say if I go down to Burnside Rugby Club and the their Colts players are playing a game of rugby, they're their level is at their level. So if we're playing a game, their skill levels, we should be able to extend them to what's appropriate for their skill level versus we could play the same same game down at Rugby Park with the Crusader players and their skill level is going to be a little bit higher. So the game's yeah. going to stretch them in the way that that needs to stretch them. Yeah. You, yeah. you just um, you adapt every game to the level of the players, but the aim is to is to create that growth every every training, whether it's mental skills. You know, um, people always said when I was when I was a young player, yeah, it's your top two inches that count, but yeah. no one ever coached it. Um, so I think bringing bringing that, you know, a lot of coaches now have an awareness of of sports psychology and breathing. You know how to breathe to calm calm your heart rate down. How to think about your next task, that sort of stuff. But take it out of the classroom, stick it into your activities. And what does that look like? You don't have to copy everyone else. What does it look like for you? How are you going to test these players at any level, whether it's Colts, ideally at Colts level? How are you going to test them so that they're ready, ready on the weekend? So that when this happens on the weekend, they're not going to be flustered. Of course, they're going to get flustered, but they're not going to be as badly flustered as they have been before. And eventually they get better and better. It pays to explain to, to the players what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, some mistake I made early on was um this is even with crusaders and with the all blacks um didn't explain well enough what i was doing and so what looked like me being pissed off um or too tough on them was actually me just testing them now i always explain to them you know with i did the same with the black ferns i'm um, so did my other coaches um particularly wes clark um the defense coach we were very aligned at creating um pressure um pressure situations bit of chaos and then seeing how the players adapted to it um Whitney and Crono worked in their own areas doing that with the forwards um at, at a very high level obviously I mean Mike Cron's the best coach I've ever coached with and he was um mentoring Whitney who's already a very accomplished coach as you can see yeah um so I had top people buying into 
into what we were doing and uh, doing it in a really, you know, really effective way. But that's top level, but you know, yeah. you can you you got to start somewhere and um, you start at a level that's appropriate. Sometimes it's just slightly out of the reach of the skill level of the team you're coaching, um, but they'll they'll rise to that eventually, and then you just keep pushing and keep pushing. That, that's how you grow. And you know, for me, even when I first started with Crusaders, I had a vision-driven, values-based program, and the outcome for me was always satisfaction. I, I never, I never looked at winning as my prime goal. It was satisfaction, whatever that looked like to us. Yeah, and often it it can result in winning, but um, you know it's. It's a process about how you go around doing something that makes you feel like you're actually improving the players and are enjoying it and and you're getting satisfaction out of the games. No, that's that's awesome. That's um that's some great I've written down heaps of notes already around um around our conversation. I think um one big takeaway for me for the coaches that are listening in already is um just those the power of questioning for that curi- for your own curiosity. So like, for example, questioning the way that what players are doing in a, in a really mindful way, making sure that we're using those, the what questions that you are doing versus why and how questions. So we're not trying to place any judgment, but also um, questioning around like, what are they, what's, what is somebody else doing? What could it look like in our environment? Um, and another thing that I've picked up around kind of what drives your curiosity is around reading and learning from other people and, and, and their experiences and then just trying to think what can that look like in my environment um, yeah. as that I have, which is which is really cool. Um, we'll jump into our quick fire segment and I've actually just added a, um, a new question into this. So um, based on our conversation already, but you're inviting three people to dinner. What? Uh, who are you inviting and what are you cooking? Um, I'm I'm cooking a risotto. Oh, and it's probably um, sausage and mushroom risotto. It's about the only Italian dish I, I'm good at. Yeah. Um, my guess would be Anika Moa. Oh, yeah. like, I love her sense of humour and I I love her voice um, when she sings. I just think she's a real Kiwi personality. I don't know why. Um, yeah. She'd be one. Um, I would probably invite Al Brown because he would bring some um, wild sausages. He's an interesting guy. I love his restaurant, The Depot in, in Auckland. Um, yeah, I find him a f- yeah, I don't know, another guy that's fascinating. Uh, and I'd love to bring Pierre Vulpreur over from France. I think he's possibly the greatest coach the world's ever seen without the world actually knowing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, no, that's awesome. And that risotto sounds delicious. Um, what's one of your favourite um, sporting memories, either coaching or playing? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll go for a playing one because coaching doesn't replace playing for me. Like yep. one of the worst days of my life was when I – stopped playing and I took up coaching because I still wanted to be part of a team and I want to be part of a contest 
Um, so I think clearly playing your, um, getting your first All Black jersey is a pinnacle of your career. But for me, the greatest years of my life were with Canterbury, um, particularly when Grizzin and um, Dougie were coaching. Donny Hayes was kept, Donny Hayes the best captain I ever played under because he had a humility and a, and a teamness about him um, and a leadership um, that was true and genuine, you know? Yeah. Great, great, great team man. And probably I'll go for the 82 Shield Challenge against Wellington where we won and set up a 26-game um, number of defences. Yeah. And, yeah, they're the great years of my life. So, 82, Shield, win against Wellington. Yeah, on on that, um, and I know your, your affinity with the Canterbury Bees program, and I was pretty privileged to be involved as campaign manager last year with the Canterbury Bees. And we were pretty blessed. We um, obviously had a quick chat with you last year around your time in, in the Canterbury Bees set up um, and that that era um, that you're just talking about. We talked to Robbie and he also had fond memories. And then we just had um, a number of other guys from the Shield era that came in and kind of brought, um, I wouldn't say brought the passion back for rugby within the region but it definitely like there was a song song created for Robbie Deans around give it a boot and that whole like that whole legacy that you guys created and you probably see it on the wall behind me around all those the championships and and the shield defenses and stuff like that was awesome to see that how passionate you guys um or that team is about those years and whenever they whenever I've talked to um, kind of your ex-teammates about that they've all just said like that time of the year was the greatest part of their some of the greatest yeah. time of their lives because of the the friendships that you created um, the bonds obviously the winning kind of helped in the, the defences of the shield um, and what's kind of got me curious and talk to Robbie about it and be interested to get your little note is a lot of those a lot of those players that you played with went on and become coaches. Was it something that Grizz did to impart of like around giving back to the game? Or is it just something, like you said, your your worst days um, was when you stopped playing rugby? Or was it that that's kind of made you all to become coaches? Yeah, there's a bit of everything, isn't there? Um, club rugby was strong. Yeah, we virtually every club had good club coaches who inspired you. Um, I was always inspired to to go on and be a coach at club level. If um, if that's what I could achieve, you know, that's that's what I wanted to do. Um, with Alex, so I played with Alex. Um, he was captain of the Canterbury in '79 when I first made the team. And I'd never played with someone who was so tactically aware. And number eight, he would pull his head out of the scrum, call a move, and then put it back in, and off we go. You know, and he he read the game really well. Um, and it wasn't just Alex from 82 on. It was Dougie as well. And for me, um, Dougie was critical, you know, and that he, he wasn't a skills and drills sort of guy. He was uh, game management sort of coach and just shared little 
pearls of wisdom. And around me, I had, you know, Gary Hooper, I've spoken about, Kieran Kane, um, then Warwick Taylor outside me, Bruce Dean's inside me, um, Victor Simpson, very underrated brain in the game, um, Craig Green on one wing, Robbie at fullback. Um, yeah, these were very, very smart players who virtually all went on to coach and it came from the environment. I think the, not just the academy environment, but yeah, club environments. Yeah. I think um, everyone wanted to give back to the game. And of course the forwards were the same. Most, most of the forwards in that team have, or they've all given back to the game. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's cool. Um, what's one bit of advice you'd give a young Wayne if he was to start out on his coaching journey all over again? Um, I would say be open to ideas, um, be prepared to share an idea and get five back. I had a life-changing um, experience, I suppose, in, in 97, my first year with Crusaders. I was at the New Zealand Rugby Union Super Rugby Conference and Graham Henry, who had won in 96, was a guest speaker and he gave us everything that the Blues were doing. And I was sitting next to Frank Oliver and we were writing everything down. <laughs> you know, the halfback eight metres when he took a pass from number eight, he was eight metres from the scrum and he was flat, um, you know, and all this stuff. And I'm writing it all down and I'm thinking, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to implement all this. And, and so what, what um, Graham was doing was he was sharing what they'd done, but he already had ideas to take it further. So he was, he was bringing us to that point, um, but he was already going to there. Yeah. Um, and you know, it was an outstanding lesson for me to share ideas. You'll get some back, but keep growing your game. And so in um, 99, after we'd won in 98, I was a speaker at the conference and I shared everything that Crusaders had been doing. And I looked down at the audience and there was Frank Oliver writing everything down. <laughs> 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 and I'd already planned with um, – Sloney and of course Steve Hansen was joining me that year. We were already planning where we were going to go. So yeah. share ideas, but keep but keep growing yourself at the same time. Yeah, no, that's that's cool. Um, who's a coach or educator that's had a positive impact on you? Oh, heaps. Many, like too many to name. I've, I've already named Laurie O'Reilly. Um, at school, I had a guy, Dave Merito. Um, who was in Murray All Black. He was our first 15 coach and had a maths teacher called Pat McEntee. He spent a lot of time with me. He saw something in me. Um, he spent a lot of time, a lot of lunch, a lot of his lunch hours. They were really inspirational people for me. Um, Grizz, we've talked about. Um, Brian Hall was massive through my whole through my whole career. I had him as a coach, but also latterly as a mentor. Um, Bryce Rope who was a hell of a good man and we played for in the All Blacks. Um, Andy Holland at at Belfast was a very smart, very, very smart rugby coach. Taught me a lot of stuff at club level. Um, Laurie clearly um, was my um, great mentor all, all the way through my coaching career while he lived. 
Um, yeah, it's, it's just been, you know, Graham Henry's probably the greatest man I know in the game. I, I loved coaching with him, Steve Hanson and Mike Cron, two of the greats. Yeah. Um, Cron, I think, is probably the best coach in the world. Um, Steve Hanson, very clear on what he wanted to achieve and how to achieve it. Um, you learn from all of them. Yeah. You learn from all of them. Um, all outstanding. Wes Clark and Whitney Hanson and the Black Ferns, I'm still learning. Oh, that's that's awesome. Um, I know that you don't have a bank of these um, stored up, but if you were to pop down to Waihe Athletic tonight, it is Tuesday, what would your go-to activity be with the with the team to get them get them going? I'd I'd play a game. I'd design a game that having watched them play, um, it might be they play a really attacking game, way athletic, and they like a bit of width. So we'd play a game in a wide field. Um, I might stop the defence from being able to go wide. So we might play. Um, I might have some cones there. Defence defence can only stay within the cones. Yeah, and the attack could go right to the edge of the field. The defence could go into that area if um, once the ball's there, but they can't go in before the ball's there. So how do you get the ball to a wide player with space rather than let the defence recover? So I'd do something like that, and then I would look at some skills within that that we need to improve, do some part skills through the through that game. And that game might go 20 or 30 minutes with, with some learning as we go about the individual skills that need to be worked on to be effective at that at that sort of game. Yeah. It'll be something like that. Yeah, no, that's that sounds um wicked. Uh this is the new question that I've just added into our quick fire segment. Uh what would your go-to book be if you were to re-read one? Um Stephen Covey's The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. Awesome. I think that would be my number one. Um it's not about rugby, obviously, but it's about life and got some great lessons in it. I could name you probably 30 books, but that would be my number one. Yeah. No, that's – that's. A, um, I've had – I haven't had a chance to give it a read yet, but I've had many people talk about it, um, talk about it a yeah. lot. And the eight uh, habits. The eight habits are good follow-up. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, wicked. And what does being a coach mean to you? Um, well, it's allowed me to uh, stay competitive, be a, be a part of teams that I love, um, and keep the con- keep keep being part of the contest. Yeah, that's what I love. It. That's what I love about it. As I said, for me, it doesn't it doesn't trump playing. Playing for me were, were the greatest days of my life, and I've already talked about that Canterbury team in Belfast and Patarau. They were they were my dream. Patarau was my dream. Um, and then, you know, I, I just think play as long as you can and then get involved in coaching because it, it continues on the story. Yeah. No, that's that's awesome. And what I love about that, that staying competitive is just that part of like um, how you said when we're in the – our big part around being curious is around that satisfaction piece is 
I guess that's the way that you yeah. find your satisfaction now within in the game, and that's um that's a cool way to finish this this pod off on. So um, Wayne, I can't thank you um enough for being so obliging to jump on and and chat to myself and and our coaches out there at the community. Um, it's awesome to see that you've still got a massive passion for the community game, but um, it's awesome to see that um, yeah, you're just so open with sharing kind of your your thoughts and theories around curiosity and hopefully our listeners have have pulled away some some amazing gems from our from our chat today so thank you very much for being our guest today no worries mate no worries. it was a pleasure what a great conversation we just had there with wayne smith one of new zealand's top coaches and what i really loved about that conversation that we just had with him there's a whole heap of things, but mainly the big point of like where he pulls information from and his ideas and his thoughts. So it's not just from one place. It's from all his different experiences that he has with different people from all the books that he reads. And so that feeds his curiosity around how can we do things differently? How can we do things better? How can we be better and I think that's really important as a coach. And that's why it was awesome to get him on as, as a guest for the podcast to really quiz his curiosity around uh, where, he's, where his thoughts at. It would have been in reflection, I probably should have asked him, what is he curious about at the moment? Um, but what I'll probably say to the coaches out there that are listening in is, Maybe I'll pose that question to you. What are you curious about at the moment? Is it a where around how can you manipulate attacks? And that's where obviously that stuff around Gary Hooper, around painting a, a false picture. What does that all look like? Um, are you curious around how can you become better as a coach and look at the game a little bit better? So a little bit around Laurie O'Reilly and how coaches see the game versus how players can see the game and then and also around other processes that you've got are they fit for your team and so just have a little little think about that and reflect around how you're coaching at the moment and what you're doing if you're comfortable with what you're doing then by all means that's that's epic but if there's a little voice in your head or there's like just a little nag or something that you're just feeling like you can be better in one area, then how can you find that information? Who can you talk to? Hopefully these podcasts are helping you kind of feed that curiosity and hopefully you've taken as much notes as I've taken away from this conversation with Wayne. So uh, if you did enjoy this um, this conversation um, and the pods, please make sure you pass it on. I'd love it to share these to as many coaches as possible because not only are we trying to serve our our community, the Canterbury community, but what we're finding is that we're serving a greater coaching community out there um, around the globe. So uh, keep tuning in, keep listening in. We've got some wicked more coaches uh, and experts in their fields that I feel is going to help, um, that could help, sorry, that could help you as a coach. And so, yeah, just really carry on um, sharing and spreading the, the Coaches Corner podcast would be amazing. And um, we'll see you around the traps on our next episode.